Good morning again. My name is Derek. If I haven't met you, uh, I would love to meet you. And it's the time in our service now where we get to turn our attention uh, to God's Word. Although we've been looking at God's Word since the very beginning of our service, we'll continue to do so because we come to be shaped by God's Word. We come to sit under His Word that we might be conformed to it. So with that in mind, uh, open your book, open your Bibles to Colossians. Or um, I'm, I'm almost to the point now where I'm uh, saying, open up your devices to, to Colossians. So um, still hard for me to get quite there. But Colossians chapter 2 is where we are. And I'm going to read uh, 16 through the end of the chapter. It's also on the screen above me. You can follow along there or in your Bible or on your phone. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you tell us in your word that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. Lord, open our eyes today, soften our hearts, open our ears that we may hear you and see you and know you, and that in knowing you we may love you and we may follow you. We ask that you would do this for us in the name of Christ. Amen. You may have 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 heard this kind of in medical circles. There's some some pretty alarming statistics that those who have heart disease and oftentimes those who end up having heart surgery oftentimes have to have the same surgery again. And the reason is that the doctors who do the surgery almost always tell their patients afterwards, okay, here's the plan now of how you need to live your life, and here's the lifestyle that you need to live, and particularly here's the diet that you need to abide by if you want to keep your arteries clean, if you want to keep your heart healthy, if you want to not show up in my office again, here's what to do. And doctors will tell you over and over that by and large, that doesn't happen. People, even when they're told, do this or you will die, still have a hard time changing. You know, uh, it wasn't too many years ago that the FDA mandated that calorie labels be put on all food. And even, you know, if you go now to uh, McDonald's or Chick-fil-A or any kind of fast food restaurant, you see the calorie information. You see actually nutritional information. I'm I'm using nutritional in its broadest sense. uh, Nutritional information there on the menu and the thought was this, you know, if we put nutritional information there on the menu out in front of, for everybody to see, if everybody knows what it's going to do, then that's going to change their behavior. 
And of course, when these things came out, everybody said, great idea. Overwhelmingly, the public said, this is the best way to change behavior. Except that it wasn't. Because study after study has shown that those labels actually don't change our behavior. Even though we see it, even though we know it, our behavior still doesn't change. It really begs the question for us, what is it that leads to change? How do people change? That is a human question. It's not just a church question. It's not just a Bible question. That's a real human question, right? How do I become something different than who I am? How do I be a better parent or a better spouse or a better neighbor or a better worker? How can I stop doing all the stuff that I don't want to do in my life and start doing more of the stuff that I do want to do? Or even more so as parents, like how do, how do our children grow to know and to love the Lord and to want to be attached to him their whole lives? How do we get out of terrible behaviors and addictions and patterns? How do we stop from being the ugly, terrible people that we even see ourselves being, almost like an out-of-body experience? We experience it, but we still can't really stop it. How do we repair our marriages, our friendships, our relationships? How do we change in life? Well, again, that's a human question, and it's a question that I think these folks in this little church in Colossae were also dealing with, because they're a lot like us. They have the same questions. They want to know how they can be the people that they want to be as well. Unfortunately, they were also given some answers, and they were given some wrong answers, We've talked about this a little before, but there's a group in Colossae in and around the church that's preaching basically Jesus plus. Jesus is fine and all, and okay, it's great. You can worship Jesus, and he did some great things, but if you really want to see change in your life, if you really want to have real closeness with God, if you really want to experience a real spiritual connection, then you need to add these things to Jesus. And remember the equation that we talked about, Jesus plus anything else equals nothing, is that Jesus, when we add to him, it actually ruins the whole equation. And there were two very particular things that I think were being promoted here in this young church that we still see in our culture and even in our church today and helpful for us to recognize. They are false ways of change. And it's these two things, moralism and in this word that I think I'm probably making up right now, experientialism. Moralism and experientialism, and I'll define that made-up word here in a little bit. But let's start with the first one, moralism, as the way for us to change, the change that happens from the outside in. Look again at verses 16 and 17 that I read before. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you because of, and then he lists a few different things, new moons, Sabbaths, food regulations. These are all actually Jewish legal regulations. They're all things that actually have something to do with uh, the Jewish purity laws, with Jewish laws for uh, regulations for how we interact with God. And so in the Old Testament, actually, God had laid out, here are the things that you can do 
that are going to set the pattern for establishing what it means for you to be made right with me. They were food laws. Here are things to, t- to eat and things not to eat. They were festivals that would happen year-round where people would come and celebrate and glorify God together. They were Sabbaths, both weekly and yearly, of times of rest for God's people. But what's happened here in, in this New Testament church in Colossae is that there's a group of people who have said, no, no, okay, all of those things, they were actually the important things that actually made you change. They were the things that started to work change in your life. And so we need to add those things on to Jesus if you really want to see change. So if you really want to be a true Christian, you first of all need to be truly Jewish. You need to adapt all of these things. But what Paul is saying is that those things are a shadow, not the substance. Did you hear that in verse 17? He calls them a shadow, not the substance. What is he talking about there? Well, probably exactly what you're thinking. A shadow and the thing that makes the shadow are connected, but one is not the other. In fact, that word for substance that I read there is the Greek word that we often translate body. And so the image is this, is that it's a person, a body that's casting a shadow. And what Paul is saying is that the error that's happening here is that they are looking to the shadow and thinking it's the shadow that's the true thing. It's the shadow that is the thing that's going to actually lead to real change in their lives. And Paul is saying, no, it was supposed to be pointing to the substance all along. It's actually really important that we realize that Paul did not say, listen, all the Jewish stuff that you've ever heard before, it's totally meaningless, worthless, erase it all, tear the Old Testament out of your Bible because it's pointless now. But that's not what Paul says. He doesn't say it's pointless. He actually says it's supposed to be doing something, pointing toward something else. And in fact, all of those regulations that we find in the Old Testament are leading their way up to Jesus. They are outlining for us, like a connect the dots outline, exactly who Jesus is. And we need all of those things. We just don't need to focus on them themselves. Uh, If you have a dog, especially if you have a smart dog, you know that if you point and say, there's your ball, go get the ball, a smart dog will actually use the finger to point where the finger is pointing to and go find the thing that you're pointing toward. Whereas a cat or a dumb dog will just look at your finger. And that's what's happening here in this church is the people are looking at the pointer rather than the thing that's supposed to be pointed toward. They're looking at the shadow rather than understanding that it actually should point to the substance. And what they've put on is this idea that moralism, if I just kind of obey all of the rules of society and adapt my way to acting and living that way, then that's the way that I will be made right with God and that's the way that I'll find change in my life. How about for us? It's tempting, I think, sometimes to think, you know, our society is so secular now that the idea of moralism is completely out the window because, shoot, there are no morals anymore. It's tempting to think that, but it's wrong. Actually, even though our society has secularized more and more, it is still just as moralistic as it ever has been. Think about this for a second. A hundred years ago, most people would have adopted a biblical sexual ethic. And to live outside the biblical sexual ethic sex between man and wife within the covenant of marriage, to live outside of that was actually to put yourself outside of the norms of culture. And so you could be at danger of losing your position in society 
If you worked outside of that, especially if you were a woman and you were found to be promiscuous, you may change the rest of your life. You may be cast out of society altogether. You may lose your job. You may lose your position because the norms of society were gathered around that biblical sexual ethic. However, at the same time, if you were white, you could own somebody of a different skin color. So we have some biblical ethics worked into culture, but not all. Fast forward to today, and we actually have, by and large, a culture that has rejected the biblical sexual ethic. In fact, if you say, I'm actually working according to what the Bible says about sex and marriage and relationships, pretty much people think you're an oddball. You're pretty much outside of our culture's norm anyway. However, we have in many right ways and in some also uh, discouraging ways uh, adapted the idea that, you know, the way that we speak and we talk about people matters. But now we have highlighted that to a moral. We have highlighted that to, or we have raised that to the level of a rule. So that if our language now is in some way frustrating to somebody else, or if our language hurts someone else's feelings, now you can be actually cast out of society or lose your job because of that. John Gruden's a great example of this. He's the now former coach of the NFL Raiders football team. And it was found in an investigation about something completely different, that he had written in some emails some pretty disparaging things and some pretty hurtful things. And because of the words he used in an email to a friend, he has now had to step down from his job. He's been really cast out of society. My point is this, is that we're still being moralistic. We have just changed the, ru the rules. We've just changed the morals, and we've said, here's the structure of our morals and our rules, and if you work outside of those things, then you can be accepted or not accepted. But here's the real point. Both of those are a shadow. They're not the substance and as Paul says here at the end of this passage, the most important thing I think in this passage is that they have the appearance of wisdom, but they don't have any power to change our hearts. And friends, that is true with moralism in whatever society. 100 years ago, though, as a society we adopted a biblical sexual ethic, friends, the heart was still sinful. You could still find brothels in any city. Men still had mistresses all the time did never do anything to change the heart. It had the appearance of wisdom, but it doesn't have the power to change the heart. And today, with a beneficial highlighting of the way that we speak to one another, that's good for our society, but it still doesn't have the power to change our hearts. We're still hateful to one another. We're still self-righteous about all kinds of things. We're still terrible and mean to each other all of the time because moralism does not have the power to change our hearts. It has the appearance of wisdom, but there are no teeth. How about this second piece, what I'm calling experientialism? Experientialism, maybe even spirituality, kind of a spiritualism that's unattached to Jesus. Paul talks about this here in the next verse. Listen to verse 18 again. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. What's going on here in the original context? Well, a few things. First of all, 
Asceticism is the word that the ESV uses. Asceticism is basically a removal from everyday regular life into kind of a denial of all things that are pleasurable. It's the way that I get to kind of remove myself from regular life to make me feel more holy, more spiritual by denying myself things that are pleasurable. And then he says there's worship of angels actually happening even. Is that folks have been so enamored with angels that they have begun not to actually worship like those angels and let those angels point them to the worship of the Lord, but they've begun to worship the angels themselves. And then the other thing that's cropping up all the time is these visions. People that are having these uh, ecstatic experiences where they feel like they're connecting personally with God and they're coming back and then and probably saying, because of these visions, here's now the way that you need to be taught. Here's now the way that you need to hear me because I've heard from God. He spoke to me directly. And so follow me as I've heard directly from God. What I think all of these things have in common actually is the denial of regular, everyday life and an elevation of the things that remove us from regular life, an elevation of the experience, an elevation of this ecstatic experience, whether in a vision or in some kind of angelic worship or in the removal of society that kind of makes me feel like I'm at a different, higher level than everybody else because it's the regular, mundane stuff that I don't want to get all muddy in so I remove myself with this experience. How about for us? We see any of that in our culture? Well, honestly, even some of these things, you probably don't find a lot of people uh, worshiping angels. But if you've ever been to Hobby Lobby, you can probably see that angels are still pretty, pretty prominent. They're kind of everywhere. In fact, the idea of a guardian angel that watches over us and it keeps us from harm is actually a lot more palatable to our society uh, than a crucified king who lays down his life for his people. He calls them to do the same. How about just the removal of ourselves from regular mundane life? Well, asceticism in the way that it was practiced in the first century, probably you can't find a lot of it now, but we've put a new name on it. It's called minimalism. It's the removal of all things. We get to clear out all the clutter. We get to kind of reduce and reuse and recycle, and we get to, in doing so, remove ourselves kind of from the regular world and enter into some sort of Zen state of minimalism that makes us feel really great about ourselves. Or visions. Yeah, maybe we're not having a lot of visions these days, though it is interesting. If you look up in all the leadership books, the one thing that you want from a leader is that you want him to be a visionary. You want him to have kind of a different vision than you have. But we find this, I think, oftentimes in our churches in this just kind of search for the experience I have friends who have converted to Roman Catholicism and many of them have done so because of their love for the transcendence that's on display. Now listen, I do think the Catholic Church does a pretty good job of proclaiming God's transcendence and beauty and mystery. But if we are worshiping the transcendence, if we are worshiping the beauty, if we are worshiping the mystery, then we are worshiping the shadow not the substance. It happens, of course, in evangelical churches too when we come to the worship service because of the experience. We want something big and really fun that's going to really elevate us emotionally. And we want to kind of be given this high, almost like we're on a drug, and we come in and we've got this Jesus high that we get to leave on, happy, you know, that'll last for a good five days. 
then there's you know, a day and a half in there that's really terrible. Then we get to come back and do it again, and it's great. And so we look for the place that has the best experience. In fact, nowadays, probably more, more often than not, you can just put that great experience together on your own and sit on your couch and experience it. You can watch a better preacher than me. You can listen to music almost as good as what we had this morning. And you can do it all at the comfort of your own couch. You can have the experience that you want. <laughs> and it will not be good for you. Because experientialism, just like moralism, has the appearance of wisdom. It looks good, but it doesn't have the power to change our hearts. There's no teeth to it. It's like the veneer that's on a piece of furniture. Have you ever seen that furniture and it looks so beautiful? And you're like, man, this beautiful exotic wood, and it's got this incredible grain, and it looks amazing. And you realize finally that actually the wood with the incredible grain is only about a half a millimeter thick. And it's right over some really ugly wood that's making the furniture stay together. It's the sturdy part, but it's ugly underneath. The veneer is on the top, and it looks great, but it's just a veneer. It's not solid. That's actually what this message of moralism and experientialism is for us. It's the shadow. It's the finger. It's the pointer. But it's not the real thing. So what's the real thing? What's the cure? How do we change? Where is the real power for change in our lives? Look at verse 19 because Paul lays it out here for us. He's talked about not being dis- letting anyone disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or worship of angels, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and then 19, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and its ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Friends, how do you change in your life? How do you see all that stuff we talked about? How do you see real change in your life? How do you see growth happen? What happens by staying attached to the head? By actually staying attached to Jesus, it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. It is attaching ourselves to Jesus and him alone that is the real power for change in us because he is all-inclusive. He fulfills us completely. We don't have to go outside looking for something else. That's Paul's message over and over and over in this letter is that Jesus is enough. And to add anything to him is to actually dis- diminish him. I had a friend tell me about this place called uh, the, the Cloister Hotel in Sea Island, Georgia, I think. And it's probably like some places that some of you have been. It's an all-inclusive resort. And he had friends that had gone there on their honeymoon, like many do. And they had saved up for quite some time. They were not wealthy They were going on their honeymoon. They were ready to enjoy everything. And they got to this place and and the accommodations were fantastic. And the place was beautiful. And their time on the beach was amazing. And they went to have dinner and they sat down and they had this exquisite meal, steak, lobster, incredible dessert. And then at the end of the meal, actually, when they're finally feeling full, the waiter came and he laid down the bill and he opened it up and it was $200. And they thought, wait, what just happened? We thought this was all paid for. And having looked at that bill and thinking, oh no, we saved up only really to to cover the cost of the all-inclusive. We don't have enough to cover all of this food every time. So after paying that bill, they made the decision that for the rest of the week, they were going to eat at McDonald's. And so that's what they did. They would maybe go, you know, starve themselves through breakfast, 
go get a Big Mac at lunch, eat a little snack at dinner. And for the next three days, they filled themselves up on McDonald's. They enjoyed the beach and they enjoyed uh, the accommodations. But the food that always looked so tempting, they never actually went and ate. They ate the McDonald's instead. And then at the end of the week, when they were about to leave, they were telling some friend that they had just, they had just come back from McDonald's with a bag of McDonald's you know, hamburgers with them. And that friend said, what are you, what are you doing? The food here is a lot better than that. And they said, yeah, you know, but you know, it's finances and we can't really afford it. And he said, what are you talking about? It's an all-inclusive resort. All of the food is paid for. When they bring you the bill, you just write down your room number and it's all paid. Sometimes we can act like that, I think, in the Christian life. Like there's something out there that we're just not getting and we've got to go find it. And we fill it with stuff that has the appearance of wisdom but it has no real power for change. Friends, what Paul is telling us here is that Jesus is all-inclusive. He has given us everything that we need and that when we stay attached to him, when we abide in him, as John says, that we actually get that beautiful, all-inclusive bounty that he provides. That's my prayer for us this morning that we would turn away from the, the siren songs of moralism and experientialism and that we would turn to Jesus who fulfills us completely. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have given us everything. You've given us even yourself. Lord, show, what, show us what it means to turn away from these things that seem so alluring and appealing to us. Let us turn away from the moralism of our culture or even the culture of yesteryear. Well, let's turn to you as the power for change. Lord, turn us away from the spiritualism and experientialism that makes us think that, Lord, if we have some sort of ecstatic experience, that that's actually what draws us closest to you. Lord, will you show us that it is actually our attachment to Jesus that gives us all that we need? Our hearts are prone to forget. So will you remind us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.